Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. I'm Megan Stafford and I'm the Program Coordinator at the Walkley Foundation. You've probably all heard of the Walkley Awards, which benchmark excellence. Along with our awards, we host an exciting year-round program of industry and public events. Independently funded, the Walkley Foundation's core mission is to foster excellence in journalism and support a robust and independent media which deepens and enriches democracy. Tonight we'll be talking about the risks, physical, psychological, political, for foreign correspondents and the local fixers who work with them. As international bureaus are increasingly depleted and more foreign correspondence falls to freelancers, what measures are in place to protect and support them, particularly as journalists become high-profile targets in terror campaigns? It's a timely discussion as we're currently running the 30 Days of Press Freedom campaign. Check it out and add your voice to the social media story at hashtag 30dayspf. We're also preparing the Press Freedom Australia Dinner on May 1. This is our major fundraiser for the Media Safety and Solidarity Fund, which assists our colleagues in the Asia-Pacific region through times of emergency, war and hardship. Ross Coulthart will be the guest speaker and Sandra Sully will MC. Tables and individual tickets are available now. Again, see walkleys.com or speak to us after tonight's talk. We also have raffle tickets for sale tonight, so why not grab one of these? You could win a fabulous, fabulous prize, secluded island getaway, anyone? Um, and support an even better cause. You can also join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Walkleys. Um, I'll just go to the next slide, but please switch those phones to silent. Without further ado, let's hear from our panel and what a brilliant group we have for you this evening, some of Australia's finest foreign correspondents. Our wonderful moderator will tell you all about them before he kicks off tonight's discussion, so let's meet him. Eric Campbell is one of Australia's most experienced international reporters. In a 20-year career as a correspondent, he has worked in more than 100 countries. He was the ABC's Moscow correspondent from 1996 to 2000, covering upheavals in the former Soviet Union and so Yugoslavia, including the wars in Chechnya and Kosovo. Sorry, I'm very bad at this. I have even written little notes. Um, from 2001 to 2003, he was based in Beijing covering China and Afghanistan until he was wounded in a suicide bombing in Kurdistan in the first days of the Iraq war. After recovering from his injuries, Eric joined foreign correspondent as its Sydney-based roving reporter. Welcome, Eric and the panel. Thank you very much and welcome to the State Library. Um, can I just ask for a quick show of hands, did anybody on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock watch a show called Foreign Correspondent? Wow, because you're about the only audience we had. It's uh, very depressing. We came back on air after six months off and we had our lowest ratings ever um, against My Kitchen Rules, which had 1.4 million people. And therein lies the problem. Um, people are decreasingly, we, the audiences are fragmenting, we have less people watching what we do, there's less money to do this sort of work. Um, as a consequence, um, assignments aren't being commissioned and when they are, they're not being properly resourced. And increasingly you're finding that um, it's not people like us going out and taking the risks, it's local hire people who are going out with um, little cameras and no insurance and no backup. Um, and it's becoming a much more dangerous environment. Um, and a consequence of that is there a lot more journalists are being injured and traumatised and um, it's, it seems to be in a downward spiral. So having started with that depressing sort of um, overview, I'm going to um, call upon my colleagues to give some uplifting stories and if at the end they haven't had any, I have a video with some cats and kittens on it <laughs> which will leave us all with a smile. So um, the first person I'm going to turn to is the fragrant Yara Bumelum on my right. Now, she is um, my hero um, and I'm sure most people's hero here because she's just really good at shit. And anyway, she, apart from being Young Journalist of the Year, she is in many ways the way of the future. She uh, not only does what I do, which is go out with a big expensive camera crew, but she often goes and shoots stories herself and she's multilingual and um, gets into places where big old white guys like me can't go. Um, so I just wanted to ask, get Yara to talk a little bit about what it's like to be in the field without the full resources because sometimes you, you go from from maximum to minimum, don't you? Yeah, I do. Um, do these work? Yes. Okay, these work. That's great. Um, 
So as Eric says, I, I often go off as a one-man band, um, shooting, reporting, producing my own stories, often to places where um, it would be difficult to go in with a crew. Um, but I do both. I, I do both. I, I go off as a one-man band and I work with crews, and I've decided that working with crews is far better, <laughs> obviously. It's, it's great. It's... It's safer. You obviously have people traveling with you. Um, the quality is better because you're not trying to focus on sound, pictures, uh, interviewing, and the actual journalism itself. Um, but in saying that, sometimes there is, um, there is a need to go in by yourself. And having that sort of skill has been helpful in, in doing stories um, which require a little bit more discretion, like going into Syria or to Bahrain or, or a conflict zone where, or a sensitive area where discretion is required. Um, whether or not it should be done is a, another matter. Um, I was lucky enough to get out of Syria without, um, without getting hurt. Um, and I did that at a time before journalists were getting kidnapped. Uh, now, to go into Syria is a death wish for many journalists unless you have rock-solid contacts who you trust. Um, you know, fixes are hard to come by, good ones, and even the ones that are good uh, can turn on you and sell you because things are getting desperate, sell you to <coughs> whoever the highest bidder is. So, yes, it looks a little bit... Um, I wasn't, was I supposed to be the ray of light in this discussion? <laughs> yeah, 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 it's really depressing actually what you're saying. Um, <laughs> the long and short of it is um, that, you know, it is, it is actually becoming more unsafe for journalists to, to go into conflict zones. Uh, freelancers who are doing it, uh, a lot of them aren't being insured <coughs> and uh, outlets are now saying if you do not have insurance... We cannot commission you for work, uh, which has its own problems because a lot of a lot of freelancers can't afford the insurance. Um, there are mechanisms in place to kind of move around that. Uh, there's one freelance organisation who commissions freelancers to do work for other more mainstream outlets called Story Hunter that says that it will insure all of its freelancers, um, and you know hopefully other more mainstream outfits won't commission freelancers who don't have that insurance because it raises too many ethical questions. But perhaps we can hear from a, a commissioning editor about this, about his thoughts about this. Any thoughts, Brian? Oh, look, <laughs> I, I, I've been opposed to, and one of the reasons I've... I've oh, come have I introduced you, by the way? Sorry. This is Brian Thompson, who is the SBS senior correspondent. Uh, he's a legend and uh, he's got a funny accent, just bear with him. <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons uh, I've, I've come off the road, actually, is because uh, of the, the desire uh, from management these days for there to be one-man bands like, uh, like Yara was. I, I've always been opposed to one-man bands. If you actually think about what a one-man band is, it's somebody playing the cymbals and the drums and the piano all at the same time. And I, I just don't reckon that you're ever going to get the... Um, number one song of the year with uh, when you're going about things like that, and I think it's uh, I think it does um, affect the quality of the product, which um, I sometimes wonder if that's not why there are less people watching because I see a lot of uh, product that isn't nearly as high quality as it used to be. But uh, I, when Yara worked on Dateline, and I remember uh, being at SBS for long enough to remember when uh, when Dateline went to um, video journalism uh, I was opposed to it but some people are very good at it and uh, and Yara is, is one of them and, and so she shows that in a sense that it can be done and so bean counters sort of think well if one person can do that then why send to but I really think that it's important from a safety point of view to have somebody to bounce your ideas off and not just a local fixer um, I, I think those of 
Peter worked with a, a cameraman for a long time. I did the same thing, worked with the same person. And you, you can trust each other's judgment. Um, and there's also somebody looking that way. When you're looking that way, there's somebody looking that way. And uh, I, I really think from a quality point of view and from a safety point of view and from a viewer's point of view to, to get the best out of the product that um, you need two people. But those days are uh, sort of slipping away, unfortunately. Well, Peter Stefanovic on my left here um, uh, works for perhaps the last network with money that still has some <laughs> commitment to, to foreign coverage. Um, he's just recently returned from being the, the London correspondent for the Nine Network. Um, you have gone from conflict to conflict to conflict. Um, I think most notably recently um, Ukraine, which was an incredibly stupidly dangerous place to be. Even with the resources of a proper network, it's still fly by, fly by seat of your pants. Well, while... Um, Resources and money seems to be getting smaller and smaller. Uh, I often only worked with a cameraman. It was just two of us. We never went with security or we found them to be a bit more of a hindrance than anything else. But one of the advantages with modern day journalism, especially TV journalism on the road now, is that uh, technology is becoming so good that things are becoming smaller and smaller. So it's easier to carry, if that makes sense. So um, I can, in Gaza, for instance... Um, we were able to broadcast live by plugging in a laptop into the hotel internet. And it was that simple, didn't really cost us any money with, with regards to the internet as well because the hotel gave us a bit of a rate. I don't know how they got the internet so fast, but they were able to get it anyway. But I was able to broadcast live by using just small amounts of equipment. And we did the same thing in Ukraine too. So that is, that's one of the pluses. Uh, that happens in these areas uh, at the moment too. Have you periscoped? I don't know what that is. There's been a lot of people talking about periscope lately. I need to have a look at this, right? I'm just right? going to actually live stream um, a few seconds of this. You just go to an app called Periscope and you go online and it streams out to whoever's watching Periscope and you can actually then check it for the next 24 hours. So I just downloaded this last week, but it does have the potential that if you're somewhere where there's a riot or something, you just do that and do it as it happens, and then the newsroom can just get that off the internet. So that's amazing. Um, yeah. amazing Skype is handy too. I did a few. Anyone can do that? Mm. Anyone, any punter. Any punter. Well, recently there was the big fire in New York, and all the pictures were coming from punters with Periscope. Yeah. By the time the news crews got there, it was all over. Well, I think that's <laughs> another challenge of, of journalism and the way things are going, and you were talking about how we shouldn't all be doing... One, it shouldn't all just be one person putting together the song because then you can't really differentiate between the journalists and just your regular person who's uploading YouTube, fit, YouTube footage online. And I think that's why people are switching off. I noticed CNN have, well, for quite a while now. I've had, what do they call it? iView or something? They, they get their viewers to mm. post in uh, videos. And in, in a sense, I mean, you can just see that that's where the whole thing is going. Maybe it's maybe the journalism of the future is with everybody else out there and and not with us anymore. Because I can uh, I did uh, I heard the guys interviewed that developed that app and uh, and I just sort of thought every manager is going to think right it's great we can get rid of these expensive cameras we can get rid of everything now all you need is an iPhone and uh, and that that could be the the way it's going. I mean um, and maybe I'm a luddite to stand against it. That's why salaries for cameramen are going lower because companies don't need to pay them much anymore. They get it for free from viewers. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem that I see is that with all this fragmentation, the, the role that we enjoyed of being the storytellers and, and having some credibility um, is, is, is just going down all the time, which is why I, I think that I suspect that um, you know, we are dinosaurs and the comet has struck already. Um, and when you look at the growth in television coverage, you have the odd bright spot like Al Jazeera, which does seem committed to good journalism, even though I was arrested in Qatar two weeks ago. Um, that's a lower story. Uh, but you have the propaganda networks like Russia Today and Turkish Television Radio and, and Fox News. And what 
you know, passes for journalism these days is becoming a, a much smaller field. But that's something different. I can just get back to the safety issue. You're on the road with a crew. You have insurance. You have, um, you know, arrangements where you can be flown out if, if a plane can be brought in if you're injured. If, if. But it's still, <laughs> most of those things are feel fairly nebulous when you're actually there and you're confronted with a, a drunken militiaman on the checkpoint, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. There was a couple of occasions in Ukraine uh, recently too where you would come to a checkpoint and the the thing that scared me the most wasn't so much the shells that were coming in it was those soldiers who were manning roadblocks and checkpoints uh, because you didn't know what they were going to do and most of the time they were full of booze they'd be sit there they'd be drinking vodka uh, all day and then they'd pull you out of a car and they'd have their weapons with you and they'd be pointing their weapons at you. You didn't know if it was loaded or not. You had to assume that it was. And they'd be walking around you in a very menacing fashion. And I just had to watch them all the time because I didn't trust them at all. And they stole gear out of our car. And the, and then one would come over and two and then three. And then they'd surround you. And then at that point, there was a couple of journalists from Vice, I think. That's a, that's a, a new outlet that's really come along in conflict reporting. Uh, they had been kidnapped at around that point too. Uh, so they were really targeting the Western media. And so that uh, that made me nervous every time that happened. It happened probably a half a dozen times. Mm. In Crimea, I was at Balaclava when I was held up by men in Balaclavas, which I thought was, was pretty cool. <laughs> um, but um, did, uh, did you find that... You know, the news editor is aware of the dangers. Are you being given the choice each day of whether you go out or not and how far you go, how much pressure you under from outlets to file, even when you think yeah. it's... Absolutely. It's always up to you. If, if you're not feeling right, if you're not feeling safe, then it's your choice. I only travelled with a cameraman. On this instance, we had a translator because I didn't speak any Russian. Um, and we needed to go into hostile territory. So we needed... There needed to be a conversation between the two groups. But I maybe sometimes perhaps foolishly would go, would go too far, just out of intrigue, I suppose. I wanted to know what was over there. You know, I wanted to know what those guys thought or what they were saying. But I'd always have a conversation with my cameraman because I wasn't going to go if he didn't want to go as well. So I'd always say, are you okay with this? And most of the time he would say, yep, let's do it. Let's go and check it out. Otherwise, our story today hasn't gone anywhere. So we need to go and find something. Otherwise, it's similar to the story that we did yesterday. So you would normally just file for um, the main news bulletin or would you be filing updates? Or Yeah, we, what we do is we, we always work towards our evening news package, 6 o'clock, which is going to air at the moment. Um, so we'd pick up little bits and pieces throughout the day, uh, but we'd also have to report on the Today Show. So overseas in the Northern Hemisphere, everything's flipped on its head. So uh, we'd be working uh, all day on our six on our evening piece. I hope this makes sense, so bear with me. We'd get back to our hotel at about 6 o'clock in the afternoon local time. Then we'd set up our our broadcast equipment and do our live crosses into the Today Show. Uh, so our evening, morning here. And then we'd go to sleep and then wake up at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning and that's when our evening news would go to, evening news package would go to air. So that story that we'd worked towards that whole day, it goes to air the next morning. But But throughout the day... Uh, we have to do our updates for the Today Show and the 11 a.m. news and the 3 p.m. news and the 4.30 p.m. news and the 5 p.m. news. There's no evening nightline anymore, unfortunately. That would have been good for us because that would have been about midday local time. And then, of course, there's Twitter and Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, we've got to keep with Twitter Facebook, and Instagram yeah. and Facebook and P P Periscope now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's free. Um, but, but it, it can get worse than that. At the ABC, as a correspondent, you also have the demands of radio. Mm. So you have AM, PM, The World Today, you have the regular radio updates, you have drive time Adelaide. I just wonder if we can talk to you about what it's like over there at the moment <laughs> and how we, you have to queue for food, and, um, as well as all the online articles. I mean, the, the demands on correspondents are this enormous monster that chases you down. And, um, and often the main danger you have is fatigue because you're serving mm. so many outlets you're just going through a conflict zone enormously tired, which is like going through a conflict zone drunk in terms of your, you know, your judgment. And that, that's when you can make mistakes. Yeah. You know, when you haven't slept in a couple of days mm. and then you start getting agitated and your cameraman or your, your team start getting agitated and then you start fighting with each other and you go, right, I need to have a rest for a bit here. Yeah. 
Yara, how do you find Al Jazeera compared to, say, SBS or the ABC? Um, well, there's resources. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, that's what everything boils down to. Uh, Al Jazeera English is a, a major international network with um, seamlessly unlimited funding, um, and they have big budgets for their stories. Um, whereas SBS and the ABC, publicly funded, I think uh, budgets axed again. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of getting their budgets slashed regularly. Um, it puts a lot of strain on resources and then in turn strain on the journalists and the journalism that they can do because mm. you can't do it to the same sort of quality um, that other networks are doing it at. Mm. The, the budget cuts at the ABC in November were described as the most bloodshed among sandal wearers since the Roman Empire, <laughs> and it uh, really does feel like that. Um, yeah, so are you optimistic for the future of you as a correspondent, um, or do you see this whole industry as um, heading over a precipice? I think, I think we just need to change. I don't think that changing is a bad thing. We just kind of have to adapt um, to the way things are going, uh, and that's not even on the web. The web is dying too. It's on social media, you know, people uh, on on phones actually. On uh, people find their news through Facebook, through Twitter, through you know whatever someone shares, and they're friends with them, so they see what they're sharing. So we kind of have to adapt um, to that. And I think people will turn away from things that they can just, you know, find viral videos that they can find on YouTube. If they want journalism, they would want something that's investigative and that looks really good. And that means less one-man bands. Um, And it would have to be more conversational. So you'd have to kind of include viewers in in what you're doing, get them to interact a little bit more, perhaps have a say in how you do it, perhaps, um, you know, interact with them through comments. Um, So I don't think that journalism is, or our craft as as correspondents is gone. I just think that we have to adapt to the the new way people are receiving our information. You're looking depressed, Brian. Uh, you know, I, I, I like to think that, that Yara is right. I, I mean, I just, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't see a real future at the moment. And in, in, uh, even for a, a two-man, two-person two teams, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like anywhere else, but we are losing our audience so fast at the moment that uh, it's probably hard to see a time when we will still be um, sending people overseas. Uh, what I was think, thinking about, about TV here, I mean, I don't own a TV. I work for television. I don't own one. I haven't owned one for. I haven't owned one for about five years. I watch everything online. I watch everything on my phone. But but, but that's great for a program, say like Dateline. Why would you watch? Why would you go online to watch yesterday's news? Or even, you know, news is something I think these days that's no, live, that is be, happening yeah, at that immediate. moment. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so I think it no, works for the we, current affairs program. I don't think we should be working program. for bulletins anymore. I think we should just be thinking about what to just get news out, but get it out in a way that it's that is engaging and that people will watch it. See, the problem, uh, the, the other reason I'm a bit depressed is because I find now what, what is happening is, look, there's always been the tendency uh, for us to be sent places just to be there. You know, you're standing in front of the White House or whatever. But um, I know that at our place now, there, in the past they did expect somebody like me to go and write the story, to go and feel the whole thing. But now, because we're cutting costs, because we're asking one person to do what two people used to, a lot of the time, those stories are now being written in Sydney uh, by somebody uh, who has gone to um, Ukraine or whatever. But because of the pressures on uh, that person or because they couldn't get the equipment working or because their flight was late in arriving or because whatever, there's always an, a huge number of uh, hurdles that you have to overcome. And so more and more those stories are being written in Sydney. And, and to me, that just takes the whole thing away from it. I, I don't want to go and just stand in somewhere to, to do the live. I want to... Uh, I've always been attracted 
by storytelling, by using the pictures, by trying to uh, be a bit creative about the writing. And, and I find that that's gone as well. And so we're, off, we're sort of not giving people much of a, an excuse to, to watch. Well, Peter, do you feel you're in the last bastion of, of bulletin original reporting? Oh, I hope not. I hope not. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that audience numbers are dropping. We've got the facts. We see the ratings come in every day. You know, it, you know, a program like 60 Minutes would get a lot more viewers than it gets now. Um, but a lot of people are now watching the stories online. You know, so but we're holding on. I mean, it was 10 years ago. People were saying that commercial news was was dying then, uh, but now it's as good now as it was back then so it's it's hung in there so for that reason i hope that it that it continues um further generations though uh that could be something different yeah that could be something different another cost that is often ignored is the cost on the people who actually go to these areas and um um Fourth member, um, Kate McMahon is from the Dart Centre. The Dart Centre is um, uh, sent up a project of the Columbia Journalism School. That's it. Um, that has been looking at um, not only the effects of trauma on journalists who cover stories, but looking at ways that journalists can be more aware of the trauma of the people they're reporting on, um, uh, reporting um, on victims with, with more sensitivity. But um, you told me a, a rather alarming figure before of, of how many war correspondents you know of who report having post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, look, the uh, the research shows that 29% of... Uh, and as we were talking about before we started, they're the ones that admit to it. 29% of uh, foreign correspondents going off to war uh, have post-traumatic stress disorder. But I wanted to pick up on, on what, what all you folks were saying, Brian and, and Yuri, when you are talking about the, the single-person you know, going off as a, as a VJ, basically, um, compared to what you were saying, Peter, about going off with, with Andy or going off with a cameraman. And we, what we know is that trauma is really exacerbated by isolation. <laughs> and it really concerns me that there's a lot of young journos now, or young, you know, people going out uh, on their own, uh, like you were talking about, Yara, and just going off. Uh, with a camera that in terms of psychological consequences, which hooks into the physical consequences as well. You you know, you, like you were talking about, Peter, about getting fatigued, you get really tired. All of that stuff ties in. And so your your sense of what is safe gets really elastic when, when you're experiencing trauma, when you're tired, when you're on your own. You think you're a bit more you know, there's a bit more sort of bravado and bullshit, you know, that you can cope with things better than you actually can. So you take more risks and that's more physical risks. And so that's a real concern, I think, with single person, you know, going out single person assignments now uh, as opposed to going out with crews. Um, so we know that that fatigue and the isolation really plays into that, you know, potential trauma effects. Does that also apply to the fixes? That Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there's a recent study that's been done on uh, Mexican journalists and Mexican journalists that are then used as fixes, people going in and, uh, yeah, absolutely. Probably explain what fixes are. Yeah. Um, often the people you see doing the stories have had a fairly marginal involvement with the stories. It's the, the local hire translator or journalist who's gone out and lined up the story, found the talent... Um, um, done the interviews, done the translations to you, who's been your eyes and ears in the story, and when you fly out of this conflict zone, they have to stay there and, and sometimes live with the consequences when your story goes to air. Um, they're the people we most rely on, and they're often the lowest paid and most endangered people in this whole exercise. Can, can I just say on that, uh, my, my fixer that I used many, many times up in East Timor saw that I was doing this talk and he sent a message saying, don't forget my flak jacket. And the, the, the reason for that was because we always arrived with two flak jackets, yeah. yet there were three of us. And, uh, and he was, he's a Western guy, so he was able to actually stand up. Um, and he's, a Timorese guy wouldn't have sort of said, you know, where's mine? But he used to work for Reuters and he sort of said, you know, that's a bit rich. You two guys, you come with your flak jackets and, uh, and you don't. So right from the most basic, we don't really take into account the dangers uh, that the, the, the fixers face. And that's really because the networks really are only concerned about their people. Mm. And, and 
probably, understandably so. Um, but, you know, they don't, as far as, I, I always find sometimes, it depends on the budget, fixers were a bit of a luxury uh, at SBS. I mean, they would prefer you sometimes to do a story without one to, to keep the costs uh, down, but we certainly don't really take into account their safety, and that's quite obvious by the fact that you don't arrive with a flak jacket for them. Well, I, I did a safety course once with the BBC before going into Iraq when there was a fear of chemical weapons, and the advice was if we didn't have a gas mask for our fixer and you sense there was gas, get in the car and lock the doors. That way he can't rip the gas mask off you. You can survive <laughs> while he dies an agonising death. Um, you know how hard it is to try and find a gas mask in, in Iraq? It's, it was pretty hard. Um, and we didn't get one. Fortunately, there were no weapons of mass destruction, so it all ended very happily. <laughs> Um, but yes, um, fixers of course tend not to get the counselling afterwards and, and the time off work and um, they're just left to their own devices. Yeah. Look, and, and in talking about the psychological effects, I don't want to, um, there's often a danger in uh, when we're talking about trauma that people think, oh God, you're going to go out and do this stuff and you're going to be a basket case. You know, I mean, sometimes you will be, <laughs> um, depending on how much you, you have the exposure. But by and large, it's a, you know, you folks know, you're, you know it better than I, of course. You know, it's, it's an exciting, it's an important, uh, stimulating job. So um, I think we need to also acknowledge the resilience of foreign correspondents and people going over and, and doing this stuff. That there's, there's whilst there's 29% of, of war correspondents with PTSD, the majority don't have that. So we've got to look at that side of it as well. Do you find any increased susceptibility for men or for women? No, interestingly, no. There's no difference in terms of gender, uh, in terms of, especially for journalists. And that replicates also for uh, some ambulance officers, police, the emergency services as well. So there's some sort of... Uh, I don't know, gender protective, I think it's to do with role, professional role that's protective in that you're doing a professional role, whether you're male or female, that's your role and that keeps, keeps you reasonably safe in terms of the role. When you said the majority of people don't have PTSD, do you think that quite a large or a percentage of them might be self-medicating? I mean, I know a lot of people that probably are not the same people that they used to be and they do things that they never used to do. Yeah. in order to cope with the person that they are now. If yeah. You. yeah, look, that's true. We, we know that, you know, anecdotally and, and research-wise, we know that high-exposure professions like foreign coros, cops, military, there's a high rate of, of substance use and abuse in that. There's no question about that, yeah. yeah. Mm. And is it just people in the field or when you have editors who are, you know, downloading yeah. vision all day of atrocities and... Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so what's really interesting is that recently, in 2013, what's called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, it's like what, what medical profession use to diagnose depression or anxiety or schizophrenia. Recently, the latest version has actually put in there for PTSD that you can actually get PTSD if you're watching vision by electronic mm. means only if it's part of your profession. So if you're a punter that's just watching it on tally and you go, oh, my God, I've got PTSD, they won't mm. sign the form. But if you're a video editor, you're sitting in a booth and you're doing it day in, day out, or you're a cop watching a lot of child sexual abuse or porn, you know, graphic, horrible pornographic stuff, you can get PTSD through it. So certainly you don't have to be present for it. You yes, a friend of mine um, has to has the gruesome role of sitting there and and watching all of the beheading videos coming out of Syria and massacre vision because they have to, she has to sit down, sit there and write in detail what happened, um, how did it happen, what are the, what you know is interesting or different about this particular video incident, and I think um, you know the signs were there, and she was kind of, yeah. I don't want to go on and talk too much about her, but I mean that sort of um, daily ritual of going in the morning, waking up and finding you know ten different videos that you have to go through, yeah. and seeing which one do you report about, which one is newsworthy, um, you know how much can I talk about this particular video without it being too gruesome for our readers or viewers. Uh, I think that kind of always that that does have a toll on the mm. journalists involved. Yeah. Well, there was that interesting article just in the Walkley, um, just the last Walkley from Storyfork from Mark 
historical talking about um, not just necessarily the the psychological effects but in terms of the impact on the on the viewers as well and what's the role of the journalists and the editors now in editing that material that graphic um, traumatic material in terms of us as the punters as the as the viewers as well uh, I used to be the ch chief producer at SBS so I, I used to sort of decide what was going in in the, the bulletin and 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 I can only agree when you were a cadet in fact uh, I used to make was the one that was asked to make the decision at what point we stop mm. showing the cut uh, and uh, and inevitably, I'm not. I didn't really want to watch it much longer than that, anyway. But you do. You see it for a little bit longer than that, and you have to see it for a little bit longer than that to decide where it is you want to stop. And and always with me, I wanted to make it as dramatic as possible because it was horrific what was happening. Um, so you would want to go to the the the, the most as far as you can go. Um, but yeah, somebody is always uh, having to make that decision and to be that person that mm. views that. And then when you see it, it's all pixelated and things like that. So mm. even that, is, it's not like that, obviously, when, when we're making that decision where to stop. But even now, people can, can go online themselves online. and yeah. see it anyway. Yeah. You know, I, Just out of curiosity, when those beheadings started and, and even more recently when the Jordanian pilot was burned in the cage, I had to... I had to see, you know, just uh, just for just for my own benefit, in terms of telling the story, and I, I needed to know what came next, and and perhaps perhaps we can say that we're we're watching the video, so the viewers don't have to, you know, but but I think they would be as curious as I was. I didn't watch it. I, uh, I I've yeah, been off work for yeah. a while, but I didn't watch mm. it. I was tempted to. I do. I, you know, I, I was tempted to to see how horrific it was, but in the end, I just decided I don't. I don't really need to see that. Mm. You can't really unsee those things yeah, once no. you've seen them. That's yeah. So, Peter, having had covered so many conflicts in recent years, how do you debrief and how do you sort of download? Watch telly. Yeah. Like myself in three. my room, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need to decompress. I learnt this the hard way. It was uh, Haiti was the was the first one I did that was quite traumatic. It was a place where I'd never seen so many dead people as two hundred and fifty thousand people were killed. And when I first arrived in the hotel, there wasn't much left of that hotel, by the way. But there was a garbage truck that was coming around, and you could smell it coming because it was going around and picking up bodies, and they were just thrown in the back, and then. Um, it drove along and they were being buried in mass graves and you'd see piles of bodies on the road that kind of, that's the kind of stuff that I can't unsee it's still with me now um, but when I got back I was in the United States at that time when I got back uh, I didn't do anything about it and you know a year or two down the track these images out of nowhere just came flooding back into my mind again you know it was almost um not PTSD. I wouldn't say it was that, but it was just a, it was just a moment I had where it where where it wasn't dealt with. And so, um, when when Libya came around or Gaza came around, you know, I I, I know I, I knew how to compartmentalize and uh, and deal with it. But basically, to answer your question, what, what we do or what I do anyway is you usually get about a week off, and you just do normal things. You know, I don't know what's a normal thing, but I I'd, I'd basically just watch. Watch movies, harmless, harmless movies, not violent movies, just harmless movies or comedies, or I'd go and see friends because it does. It takes you a while to decompress, you know, to let the air out. Because going back to society or normal society after being in a third world country or a situation like that, uh, it you come back and you think these these people got no idea, you know, they got no idea what's going on out there. They're so lucky, you know. It takes it takes a few days to get out of that headspace and then return to normal again if that makes sense and you guys any particular tips on <laughs> I, I i i didn't handle it well to be honest on on some of the more difficult assignments i i found myself coming back and, and kind of locking myself in and uh and taking days uh before i actually even really wanted to take a phone call and uh, and things like that so i've kind of learned the hard way that um uh and with some help that um I didn't sort of deal uh, the best way with, with these things. And often talking about it is the best thing. Mm. I mean, meeting up with friends even and just talking it over. <coughs> um, and you know that that's the most sensible things to do. But sometimes you just feel so drained 
that you just don't really want to do that. And uh, but my advice to people would be do it because locking yourself and shutting yourself down is not the answer. Yeah, I just um, pretend that it didn't happen. I'd uh, come back and just be anonymous. Wouldn't talk about what I was doing. Uh, don't didn't want questions about where I was going, uh, what I saw. I just try to slip back into my life again, life without that conflict zone. And did that work? Um, well, not when you were living. In, when you're living in one, that's hard to do. I was living in Beirut for, out in Beirut after for a, a couple of years, and that kind of didn't. It couldn't work that way. So, I think very much like Peter, I was. Um, yeah, I was uh, watching a lot of series all of a sudden, yeah. which I never thought I'd be into. But you know, Game of Thrones, <laughs> guilty. Um, yeah, so I think that was kind of one way of uh, just letting it, pushing it back. I think I watched Breaking Bad nonstop for two weeks. It was like being in a oh, meth Breaking lab. Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that was a good thing, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, an earlier generation would have just said, you know, harden up, pull your yeah. man pants on. Um, is there any truth, any any sense in that? Um, I mean, a bit of manly self-denial? Uh, no, 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 I don't think so at all. Look, I think, you know, what you folks are saying are really good strategies. Maybe, Brian, you know, sort of locking yourself away, not, but but you learnt to deal with it differently. No, look, you know, there's we're all human beings. We should be affected by shit, you know. I mean, we really should be. Um, and uh, it, it frustrates me a bit when people think, well, if you're affected by it, then you're weak. Well, it's no, it's because we're human beings. And the more we can get that into our, our general culture that, you know, we should be, as a society, we should be affected by these things and hopefully it should stimulate us to do something, both for ourselves but, but for our society, um, I think that's the better, you know. Um, but there are lots of strategies that... that journalists can learn to to self-care and you know that sort of thing where you just I, I sit and just read Marie Claire it's not no more trauma I don't want that to. would traumatize me <laughs> yeah Marie <Claire>. <laughs> <laughs> you know um that's a good thing to do you know to remove yourself from it so there's a lot of good strategies that, that people can S- sometimes the trouble as, as Peter was talking about is is actually recognizing the the trauma sometimes you don't think that you've actually Oh, you know, it was just another life-threatening experience, and uh, and and so, you know, you 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 go away and you 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 don't really, and it's only afterwards, or and sometimes much longer afterwards, you, you realise that wow, that actually scared me a little bit more than I acknowledged at the time. Yep. Mm. Well, I'm wondering if we should move to questions. Is there anyone in the audience with any curiosity? Gentlemen up the back. Should we pass microphones around or? <laughs> okay. Um, I'll preface this with just a little anecdote. I worked with one of your colleagues, um, Eric. Mr. Borman, after he'd come back from. Um, it was Trevor Borman, oh. after he'd come back from um, Lebanon, I think he was. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a story on um, the uh, horrendous fires that were burning Sydney at the time, this was many years ago, and the cameraman I was working with was a real gung-ho guy, and we were jumping fences and getting up close and personal to this fire, and <laughs> Trevor turned around and said, I've just survived three years in Beirut, and if I get killed in a fire here in Sydney, I'm coming back to haunt you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, two questions, and that, uh, well, when you travel as correspondents, do you consider arming yourselves considering who you're possibly dealing with, and do you travel as identified journalists? In other words, do you have passports that clearly state that you're a a journalist or a cameraman or something, or have you got a nondescript title in your passport, or have you got a couple of passports that you can shuffle around? Mm. And as a third question, sorry, which you can go on to at some later stage, how do relationships survive when you're out there? Whoa, Thanks. Getting into the big issues there. <laughs> um, well, I'll start with the passports question with Yara because you you worked in the Middle East, of, of course, and having two passports is the bare minimum, isn't it? Yeah, you need to have two passports in the Middle East because there's some countries that don't talk to others. So, uh, in order to get into, say, uh, to travel from Israel to Lebanon, uh, you uh, would have to 
show one passport to the Lebanese and use the other one with the Israelis because technically um, Lebanon and Israel are still at war. Mm. Um, and that applies also with Syria. You can't get into Syria if you've got an Israeli stamp. Uh, and I think it applies to Saudi Arabia. I'm not quite sure. So it just you just need to have certain passport stamps, certain stamps in one passport that would be friendly to whichever country you're going to and then another passport for those other countries. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you don't identify yourself as a journalist. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, when, when you do, it's, it, I think authorities actually um, are more comfortable if they know that you're a journalist, if you're a known entity, that there's a network behind you, that you're not some rogue person who just, you know, is going to to check out, you know, some war zone or uh, speak to an organisation and, you know, then it's your hobby or something like that and you're more likely to do something reckless or get yourself into trouble. So I think there are times when it's better to identify yourself as a journalist and that's usually when it comes to governments and authorities. Um, sometimes in conflict zones, especially now in conflict zones, identifying yourself as a journalist is dangerous because um, you can be used as propaganda from one side or the other. Um, definitely, if you're in Syria or Iraq, uh, you don't really want to let the militiamen who stopped your car know that you're a journalist uh, because you don't know if you're going to be sold off to the highest bidder um, and ransomed or worse, end up like some of the Western journalists or even Syrian journalists who've had their heads uh, cut off uh, for propaganda purposes. Uh, so I think, I think you know, it just depends on the situation whether or not you identify yourself as a journalist. And there's nothing that you can put in your passport that says you're a journalist, unless you have a journalist visa that explicitly says journalist visa, which is mm. not very common. It's usually a business visa. There's nothing actually physically in your passport that would say you're a journalist. And sometimes you don't say you're a journalist because you won't be allowed in to a country if you're a journalist. Uh, a lot of countries will give visas to tourists on the spot, but if you're a journalist, then no. Nah. Peter, do you ever pretend to just be an Aussie guy on holidays? No, <laughs> they can usually tell because you've got so many stamps in your passport. So, and then, and then if you get caught in a lie, then you get accused of being a spy, and then you're in a really big trouble. Um, so, I just always it was it was best off being honest uh, for me. And you raised a good point about arming yourself. That was that was a, 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 a top. A topic that, that came up in my early days, I always asked the question to security if we took them in, do we, do we take, do, are you going to arm yourself or do we get security in there who's already armed? But the answer was always no. And we never did arm ourselves because if you get pulled up at a roadblock or a checkpoint and they discover that you're armed, then you become part of the problem and then you become a threat and that can put you in trouble as well. So uh, we always just didn't carry anything or, or not ask, but our security didn't. There are times I've had to be escorted by soldiers. They've insisted we can't go to an area unless we join one of their convoys. And I've always felt far more threatened by those soldiers than by you know anyone they're supposedly guarding against. Mm, yeah, I think, th I think in order to kind of step back and just be that independent journalist, you cannot be armed because then you'll be seen as a combatant. Mm. Um, so even if it's dangerous uh, and everyone says to you, you should have a gun, um, it would be unwise. It would actually make it more unsafe for you to have um, arms. Well, I, I would no longer put press on the car because I, I wouldn't want to identify myself driving through somewhere as a journalist because um, you're more likely to be shot. Than Unless you're in Gaza because you need to put TV on the roof for the drones. <laughs> <laughs> you need you need them to know that you don't want to be hit. <laughs> yeah. No, they can still do that. Yeah. That happened, yeah. didn't it, with uh, a local we wouldn't TV wouldn't put Al Jazeera crew. on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass on that one. Yara, yeah, any thoughts? <laughs> they rarely work. <laughs> um, what do you do to kind of try to make them work? I mean, yeah, it's all, I'm not going into counselling, but there's obviously two things you would need to do. Don't take your, your partner out with you, I suppose, is one of them. 
Um, I found it easier when I was travelling a lot to be single. I mean, no, nobody's going to put up with the amount of times you go away, the last minute that you go away. And uh, and, and I think for most of us, there's a period where we just thrive on that. That is what we're getting our kicks out of. And uh, and so that overrides everything else. Uh, since I've done a lot less travelling, I've been a lot more successful in relationships. So, yeah. There's a lot of lonely guys out the road. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, as long as your partner is fine with what you do um, and you're, you try to minimise certain things, so I, I try to plan my trips. I'm lucky because I don't work in uh, the daily grind of news. I work in more long form, so I can plan ahead and you know, try to keep those trips um, far apart so that I can spend as much time as I can with my partner. There's a difficulty if your partner is also doing this because then you never <laughs> see them. You never sync up. No, no. Uh, Peter, any thoughts on relationships on the road? No, I was always <laughs> unsuccessful. Uh, they would always fall. But, uh, but it was, uh, I agree, it was best to be single for me for, for so long. Uh, it was, work always came first. I was pretty ambitious and I always wanted to go and from one job to the next and I, and I loved that life, le leaping from one to the next. But uh the relationship thing for that reason they all fell over very quickly because I, uh, yeah. yeah they don't the, the girls never really understood <laughs> if i was on a date and i had to i was having a meal and then all of a sudden a call came and there was a riot in greece or something like that and i was like well <laughs> here's my dessert <laughs> <laughs> You pick great. up the bill. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of us have shared some pretty romantic sunsets with our smelly old cameraman. Yes. No, I'm <laughs> um, I was wondering with the Peter Grester case, has that, or of his and his colleagues, has that impacted? I know you're mostly back in Australia, but has how much impact do you think that's going to have on the way people operate and gather stories? Like, are people going to be more cautious or change any way they gather their stories? Well, I think Peter Peter Grester um, was put in prison on national security related charges. And I think Australian journalists have a little bit more to worry about there with the new laws that have been passed um, relating to national security and reporting on that. So um, if anything, we need to be cautious here rather than overseas. The Peter Grester case was more, the Al Jazeera journalists was more about a power play between Qatar and Egypt and le and it kind of evolved into this let's free journalists and freedom for journalists but it was really there was a lot more going on on the upper levels there. Egypt for us uh, made a difference of how we tackle these things not necessarily Peter Gresta I mean if you remember right in the outset when they were trying to overthrow um, Mubarak and uh, there was um, there was a lot of a lot of journalists got injured. A lot of us got caught up in pretty pretty scary situations. And uh, there was one of those trips that um, we all had to get evacuated actually. And uh, the cost to each network was uh, thirty thousand dollars. So for uh, SBS, that was the decision round about <coughs> then that we probably weren't going to do those stories anymore. We were going to rely on the BBC and CNN and to get those because we really just, you know, we can't really afford those sort of last minute costs. And uh, so just the, the danger we were put on in under in in under in, in Egypt um, did change my then boss's view of the sort of stories we might cover. Yeah. I, I don't sense it's getting any less dangerous. Um, it seems <coughs> more restrictive. I mean, as, as countries get more sophisticated, they get more sophisticated in restricting journalists. It's not uh, this process of countries opening up. Um, I think in, in Western countries as well, it's getting harder to operate. Um, uh, yeah, and in Australia, thank God our government believes in freedom. I just mm. wake up happy every morning knowing George Brandes is in charge. <laughs> Any more questions? I think this may have to be the last one. Um, just got a question. Um, when you were saying travelling with the military convoys, with things like Iraq and Afghanistan, where journalists are embedded, and I've read stories about journalists having to wear the same uniforms and same body armour and helmets as the soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, how does that work? Because you're no longer identifiable because you just look like any other soldier. 
I've never, I mean, I've had to be embedded on occasion. I've never worn anything other than my daggy normcore clothes. Um, I would never wear military gear um, on principle. Not even something that might look from a distance no, like military you gear. You don't wear, you know, khaki. You, you, know, you have to be a dorky journalist quite separate from the, the media. I mean, the problem with, with embedding has not been so much the, the fact that if you're embedded, you get Stockholm Syndrome. It's been many of the networks that have been embedding, like Fox News was always going to be uh, even more mindless than the soldiers they were with um, because they're a propaganda network, they're not a real news network. Um, Russia Today can um, be safely embedded with um, separatist units in, in Ukraine because they are the propaganda arm of them. Um, uh, it's not a, a problem to keep a distance being embedded, um, you should certainly never wear military uniforms. I don't know, what do you think, Peter? No, uh, we always had the big bright blue flak jackets, you know, they stood out. We always debated whether or not we put press on it, but in the end it really didn't matter. Uh, no, I, I never, wore, never wore camouflage. Sometimes black, black or blue. <laughs> I have time for one more question in the minute remaining. I think a good example of why it's important to have a process for, for dealing with post-traumatic stress uh, would come from the veterans of the First World War, who in those days, of course, you didn't worry about it, you just had to put up with it, and their families were still dealing with the problems that they had 60 years later when they died. So if you don't deal with it at the time, then obviously it just lives with you for the rest of your life. And the other point, I, a bit off that, do you think Al Jazeera has now taken the place of BBC as perhaps one of the most important news-gathering items, uh, organisations? These days you seem to hear a lot more reports in Australia, at least from Al Jazeera, than from the BBC. Well, Yara works for Al Jazeera. What do you think? I contribute to Al Jazeera. I can't really... Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know how much Australians are watching Al Jazeera. I know that the, the ratings here are are steadily growing and they're reaching a lot more people. I think that the BBC will always have its place as one of those uh, reputable international companies that people turn to. Um, but networks like CNN and Al Jazeera English are a lot more innovative and better funded. And I think that's what it will come down to in the end. Mm. Al Jazeera English is very different from Al Jazeera Arabic um, in terms of values and it's it's sense of journalism and can I say that Qatar the home of Al Jazeera does not allow free journalism as I can as I mentioned yeah, I've just been arrested there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, well we had a shooting permit but it covered about four square centimetres in the centre of the city. Um, we had to mm -hmm. shoot the entire story with small cameras risking arrest. We only had one official thing allowed to shoot and that was a, a media tour of a stadium under construction. We got on the bus with the PR people assuring us that Qatar had nothing to hide whereupon four policemen stormed the bus and arrested us all including the government people. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to work for Al Jazeera, I just never live in Doha. <laughs> One more. <laughs> we have to temper your language. You just use the word shoot there, God knows how many times. I was doing a thing here in Sydney with um, Benjamin Netanyahu being brought out by um, Joseph Putnik between his political stances, and he was spruiking Mr. Putnik's latest uh, research. And he mentioned that uh, um, Netanyahu mentioned him and his wife. And I thought, oh my God, I'll, I'll need to get some footage of his wife. Who is she? And there were two guys standing at the back of the room, just quietly. And I went up to them and I said, could you tell me who this is Netanyahu is on the table? And they went, why? And I said, well, they said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm the cameraman. And they said, why do you need to know who she is? And I went, because I need to go and... <laughs> and very quickly, I didn't say shoot her. <laughs> I said, because I need to get some footage of her. And they were Mossad agents. <laughs> I think I would know who would have been shot that day. <laughs> Well, that's probably a good note to end on. <laughs> a warning to us all. Um, all right, well, um, thank you very much to my, uh, my uh, panel members, Yara Bumelam, uh, Brian Thompson, Peter Sevanovich and Kate McMahon. Um, and thank you all for coming and asking um, some unusually um, clever questions. Normally get some really dumb ones, but you've been a fabulous <laughs> audience. <laughs>
I think we'll all agree that it was a fascinating, fascinating discussion. Um, and, you know, if you want to hang around, you know, we have a couple of minutes afterwards to chat. Um, but before you do go, please pick up a flyer from out the front on the table about some of our upcoming Walkley events. Um, next month, we're back here at State Library for on May 14 for Storyology Slide Night. So if any of you are aspiring photographers or have a little personal project or something that you want to get out there, I see a few nudges. Um, you should totally enter. It's three, three minutes maximum. Go to our website, find the submission guidelines. And don't forget your raffle tickets. That's a must um, if you want to win this awesome holiday in Queensland. So as always, you can find out more from our website, walkleys.com. But I think we'll wrap it up then and just say another wonderful thank you to our beautiful moderator, Eric. He's done a wonderful job. And the rest of the panel. Thank you.